Volume 1, Chapter 6, Part 1 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 6, Part 1. Chapter 6 The Norman Kings, 1087 to 1154. William Rufus, Henry I, Stephen. William Rufus had not yet set sail from Wissant near Calais when he received intelligence of the death of his father. He kept the news secret and obtained possession of several important places on the pretext of orders which he had received from the deceased king. It was not until he had helped himself freely to the treasure of the conqueror at Winchester and had made arrangements with the Archbishop Lanfranc that he proclaimed the death of his father and his own claim to the crown. The bishop had been careful to administer to the king an oath binding him to observe the laws before consenting to give him his support. But oaths cost little to William. Scarcely had he been declared king by a council of barons and prelates, hurriedly assembled on the 26th of September 1087, than he violated his original engagements and cast the Saxon prisoners, whom his father had liberated on his deathbed, again into prisons, together with his Norman captives. The new monarch would have acted more wisely if he had decided on a directly opposite course. Scarcely had the Bishop of Bayeux and his companions in captivity been set at liberty, then they placed themselves at the head of the malcontents. The great barons all possessed fiefs in Normandy and in England. The separation of the two states, therefore, displeased them. Many of them resolved to depose William in order to secure to Robert an undivided paternal inheritance. In consequence of their manoeuvres, a serious insurrection broke out simultaneously in several parts of England. Robert Curthouse had promised to support his partisans with a Norman army, and already some small bodies of troops had put to sea, confident of meeting with no resistance on the part of the king, who was without a fleet. William Rufus took his measures, and called round him that English nation which his father had scarcely subjugated. Let him who is not a man of nothing, either in the towns or in the country, leave his home and come. Such was the proclamation in all the counties according to the ancient Saxon custom. The Saxons obeyed. Thirty thousand men assembled around King William, while the merchant ships, already numerous, were cruising in the channel and destroying, one after the other, the little flotillas which were bringing over the Normans. Bishop Odo had fortified himself in Rochester. The king attacked him there with his Saxon army, and would have compelled him to surrender at discretion if the Normans who had remained faithful to William had not interceded on his behalf. We assisted thee in the time of danger, said they. We beg thee now to spare our fellow countrymen, our relations, who are also thine, and who aided thy father to possess himself of England. The king consented to allow the garrison to march out with arms and baggage, but the arrogant prelate demanded that the trumpets should not celebrate his defeat. I would not consent for a thousand marks of gold, exclaimed William angrily, and above the sound of the trumpets 
arose the cries of the Saxons. Bring us a halter, that we may hang this traitor bishop and his accomplices. O king, why do you allow him to retire thus safe and sound? Odo returned to Normandy. Duke Robert negotiated with his brother, and the Saxons had already lost the advantages which William had accorded or promised to them in order to secure their cooperation. Lanfranc was dead, and the oppression had become more burdensome, the exactions more odious, since his influence had disappeared. The king delayed long to appoint his successor, taking himself possession of the rich domains and revenues of the Diocese of Canterbury in contempt of ecclesiastical pretensions. He had, for minister and confidant, a Norman priest, Ralph Lambard, whom he had made Bishop of Lincoln, and tyranny was so great that the inhabitants of his diocese, says the Chronicle, desired his death rather than live under his power. The hereditary passion of King William for the chase and the rigour of the forest laws were among the most frequent causes of persecution. The guardian of the forests and the pastor of the wild beasts, as the Saxons called him, took advantage of the least offence against his tyrannical ordinances to crush the thanes, who had preserved some remains of power. Fifty Saxons, of considerable influence, were accused of having taken, killed, and eaten deer. They denied the charge, and the Norman judges compelled them to undergo the ordeal of red-hot iron, but their hands were untouched. When the fact was announced to the king, he burst into laughter. "'What matters that?' said he. "'God is no good judge of such matters. It is I who am most concerned in such affairs, and I will judge these fellows.' The Chronicle does not say what became of the poor Saxons. Several times war had broken out between William and his brother Robert. Rufus had conceived the hope of expelling Curthose from Normandy. He had numerous partisans on the continent, and, but for the support of the King of France and the alliance with his brother Henry, Curthose must soon have succumbed. But in 1096, after a great insurrection in England, and at the moment when King William, triumphant over internal commotions, was probably about to renew his attacks upon Normandy, Duke Robert, seized with a passion for the Crusades, which were beginning then to agitate Christendom, suddenly proposed to his brother to mortgage his duchy for some years for a large sum of money which would enable him to equip troops and to set out with eclat for the east. The coffers of the king were no better filled than were those of the duke, but he was more skilful in replenishing them at the expense of his subjects. The monasteries and the churches were taxed like the Saxons. "'Have you not coffers of gold and silver filled with the bones of the dead?' exclaimed Rufus, and he laid his hand upon the shrines containing the reliquaries. Robert received the sums agreed upon and set out joyfully for Palestine, while William crossed into Normandy and, without meeting resistance, took possession of the duchy where he already possessed numerous fortresses. Maine alone exhibited repugnance, and a revolt broke out there in 1100 while the Red King was enjoying the chase in England in the hunting grounds created by his father, which bear to this day the name of the New Forest. He set out instantly for the continent. His nobles bade him to take time to assemble his forces. No, no, replied Rufus. I know the country, and shall soon have men enough and he jumped aboard the first vessel which he met with, in spite of the violence of the wind. 
Did you ever hear of a king being drowned? He said to the sailors, who were hesitating to set sail, and he arrived safe and sound at Barfleur. The rumour of his coming terrified the lord of La Fleche, who was the leader of the insurrection. He abandoned the siege of Le Mans and took to flight. The domains of the enemy were soon ravaged, and Rufus returned to England. Sinister rumours were circulating among the Saxons with regard to the royal forests. One of the sons of William the Conqueror had wounded himself mortally in chasing the deer in the new forest. In the month of May, 1100, the son of Duke Robert, on a visit to his uncle, was killed there by an arrow. People said that Satan appeared to the Normans and announced the sinister end which awaited them, but the Red King continued to devote himself to the chase. It was the 1st of August. He had passed the night at Malwood Keep, a castle used as a hunting seat in the very heart of the forest. His brother Henry, with whom he had become reconciled, was with him. A numerous suite accompanied him, among whom was one of the private friends of William, a great hunter like himself, one Walter Tyrrell, a French nobleman who possessed large estates in Poix and Ponthieu. During the night, the king had been agitated by terrible dreams. He had been heard to invoke the name of Our Lady, which was not his custom, but he seemed to have forgotten all about this and was preparing cheerfully for the fatigues and pleasures of the day. When he was putting on his buskins, a workman approached him and presented him with six new arrows. He examined them, and taking four for himself, gave the two others to Walter Tyrrell with the remark, the good marksman should have the good weapons. As he was breakfasting with a good appetite, one of the monks of the Abbey of St. Peter at Gloucester brought him letters from his abbot. During the night, one of the brethren had been tormented with dismal visions. He had seen Jesus Christ seated upon his throne, and at his feet a woman supplicating him on behalf of the human beings who were groaning under the yoke of William. The king laughed at the omen. Do they take me for an Englishman, said he, with their dreams? Do they think I am one of those idiots who abandon their course or their affairs because an old woman chances to dream or sneeze? Come, Walter de Poix, to horse. The hunting party had dispersed over the forest. Walter Tyrrell alone remained with the king. Their dogs hunted in company. Both were in search of prey when a great stag, disturbed by the commotion, unexpectedly passed between the king and his companion. William immediately drew his bow. The string of his weapon broke and the arrow did not shoot. The stag had stopped, surprised by the noise but not perceiving the hunters. The king had made a sign to Tyrrell, but he did not draw his bow. The king became angry. Shoot, Walter, he exclaimed. Shoot in the devil's name. An arrow flew, no doubt that of Tyrrell, but instead of striking the stag, it buried itself in the breast of the king. He fell without uttering a word. Walter ran to him and found him dead. Fear or remorse seized upon Tyrrell. He mounted his horse again and, galloping to the sea, got aboard a vessel, passed into Normandy, and did not rest until he had taken refuge upon the territory of the King of France. The news of this accident had become known in the forest, but no one gave a thought to the dead body of the king. Henry had hastened to Winchester and had already put his hand upon the keys of the royal treasury when William of Bretouille joined him out of breath. We have all, he said, 
thou as well as I and the barons, sworn fidelity and homage to Duke Robert, thy brother, if the king should die first. Absent or present, right is right. A quarrel ensued, and it was with sword in hand that Henry possessed himself of the treasure and the royal jewels. Meanwhile, a charcoal burner, who had found the corpse of the monarch in the forest, was bringing it to Winchester, wrapped in old linen, and leaving on the road behind the cart a long trail of blood. The partisans of Robert in England were not numerous. They had no leader. The Duke was returning from Palestine, but he had stopped on the way with the hospitable Norman sons of Robert Guicard, established in Calabria and in Sicily. He had even married there. Henry, meantime, had taken his measures and had caused himself to be proclaimed there by the barons assembled in London. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, had been expelled from England three years previously. The Archbishopric of York was vacant. It was the custom of Rufus to delay as long as possible appointing to the seas in order that he might himself enjoy their revenues. The Bishop of London crowned the new monarch. Henry Beauclerc, as he was called, because he was fond of books and of churchmen, became king under the title of Henry I. Henry was more popular among the Saxons than his two brothers had been. Born and bred in England, he was regarded as an Englishman, and his first care was to address himself to the English, who were more powerful than is generally believed, and who, after all, still form the mass of the people of the country. Friends and vassals, said he, natives of the country in which I was born, you know that my brother has designs upon my kingdom. He is a proud man, who cannot live in peace. His only wish is to trample you under his feet. On the other hand, I, as a mild and pacific sovereign, intend to maintain your ancient liberties and to govern you according to your own wishes with wisdom and moderation. I will give you, if you wish it, a record in my own hand. Stand firm for me, for while I am seconded by the valour of the English, I have no fear of the foolish menaces of the Normans. While the king was thus giving to the English a first charter, which proved of short duration, he determined to seal his promises by espousing a Saxon woman. He had cast his eyes on Matilda, daughter of Malcolm, king of Scotland, and of Margaret Atheling. Matilda had been reared in a convent in England by her aunt Christina Atheling, the abbess. The young girl hesitated. She had already been sought in marriage by several noblemen, and it was repugnant to her to unite herself with the enemy of her race and country. The Normans were irritated to see their king seeking support among their enemies, and they spread the report that Matilda had taken the vows as a nun in her infancy. It was necessary to convoke the bishops to decide the question. Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, afterwards St. Anselm, had returned to England. He had always been just towards the Saxons. When his patron and friend, Lanfranc, was ridiculing in his presence the Saxon devotion to St. Alphege, the archbishop who was massacred by the Danes, Anselm had said, For myself, I regard that man as a martyr, and a true martyr. He preferred to face death rather than to do a wrong for his countrymen. He died for justice as John died for the truth, 
and each alike for Christ, who is truth and justice. At the head of his bishops, and on the personal testimony of Matilda, Anselm declared that she had never been consecrated to God, and the marriage took place. The queen was beautiful, charitable, and virtuous, but she exercised little influence over her husband, and was not able to prevent his often oppressing the people. Henry had banished the favourites of his brother, who were odious to the Saxons, and Ralph Lambard, who had been a prisoner of the Tower, had scarcely escaped from that fortress when he heard that Duke Robert had arrived in Normandy with his young wife Sibylla, daughter of the Count of Conversano. King Henry was greatly disquieted by the news. He had been careful to spread abroad the report that his brother had accepted the crown of Jerusalem, a worthy prize for his exploits in the Holy Land, the discontent of a certain number of Norman barons, and their disposition to offer their aid to Robert, compelled him more and more to depend upon the English, as well as on the church. He paid court to Anselm, and when Robert, encouraged by Ralph Lombard, published his declaration of war, the bishops and the common people of England were all on the side of King Henry. The Norman barons were divided, and the Saxon sailors, carried away no doubt by the fame which Robert had acquired in the Crusades, deserted with the fleet. It was in vessels constructed by his brother that Robert crossed with his army to English soil. Duke Robert was undecided and wanting in settled character, but he was brave and his affection for his family had resisted this union which had so long prevailed amongst these three brothers. Long before, when in company with William Rufus, he was besieging their younger brother, now King Henry, but then only an adventurer without lands, who had seized upon Mont-Saint-Michel, the supply of water had failed in the fortress, and the besieged prince sent to ask permission to obtain some. Robert consented, to the great vexation of William. He even sent to Henry wine for his table. There is nothing now left to do but to send in provisions, said William moodily. What? exclaimed the duke. Ought I to let our brother die of thirst? And what other brother should we have if we lost him? Scarcely had Robert set foot in England when those among the Normans who were averse to war interposed between the two brothers. Once more, Robert renounced his pretensions to the kingdom conquered by his father. Henry ceded to him the fortresses which he still held in Normandy and promised to pay him a pension of 3,000 marks of silver. A general amnesty was agreed upon on both sides. Treaties, however, were scarcely more effectual than charters in binding King Henry. By degrees the barons who had taken the side of Robert were expelled from their domains and banished from England. The chief of all, Robert of Belesme, Earl of Shrewsbury, had given ground of dissatisfaction by raising his standard when he had been called on to appear before the royal tribunal. Besieged in Bridgenorth, he had friends in the royal camp who sought to reconcile him with the king. Do not listen to them, King Henry, cried the English infantry. They are desirous of drawing you into a snare. We arc here and will aid thee, and will assault the town for thee. Make no peace with the traitor till you secure him alive or dead. Henry pushed on with the siege. Bridge North was taken, and Robert of Belesme, an exile, passed over into Normandy, where he possessed thirty castles and vast domains which Duke Robert, faithful to the treaty, 
had begun to ravage as soon as he saw the Earl of Shrewsbury in revolt against his sovereign. In his chagrin at seeing the amnesty promised in his name to the barons violated, Robert went himself to England, placing himself defenceless in the hands of his brother in order to intercede for his friends. He even made a present to Queen Matilda of 1,000 marks of silver a year, part of the 3,000 marks which her husband had engaged to pay him. He obtained only vague promises, and from the year 1104, the resolution of King Henry to possess himself of Normandy began again to show itself clearly. Robert had lost his wife, and disorder reigned in his court. He was still in want of money, affairs were unsettled, and Normandy was suffering all the evils of a weak and capricious government. Henry openly declared himself the protector of the duchy against the maladministration of his brother. I will give thee money, he wrote to him, but yield to me the land. Thou hast the title of chief, but in reality thou rulest no longer, for those who owe thee obedience ridicule thee. Robert refused this proposal with indignation, and Henry began his preparations for invading Normandy with an armed force. The wars were always a cruel burden for the people. The levies of money necessary for the equipment of soldiers were ruinous to the poor citizens and the unfortunate peasants. Before the departure of Henry for Normandy, crowds of country people presented themselves on the road by which the king passed, casting at his feet their plowshares in token of distress. Nevertheless, the king set out and met his brother at Tinchbray, not far from Autargne. The struggle was fierce. The military talents of Robert were much superior to those of his brother, but his army was less considerable, and there were traitors in the camp. In the very heat of the contest, Robert of Belesme took to flight with his division. The duke was made prisoner, and his forces were completely defeated. Henry, at the same time, seized Edgar Atheling, once the legitimate pretender to the crown, the uncle of Queen Matilda. In consideration of these facts, he was allowed his liberty in England and received from the king a small pension which enabled him to end his days in such complete obscurity that we are even ignorant of the date of his death. Duke Robert was not fated to enjoy a captivity so mild. He had suffered defeat on the 14th of October, 1106, the anniversary of the day when 40 years previously his father had won the Battle of Hastings. God thus disposing, says the Chronicle, that Normandy became subject to England on the same day that England had become subject to Normandy. Ralph Flambard had regained his bishopric of Durham by giving up to the king the town and fortress of Lisieux, but Robert had been conveyed to England and lodged in the castle of Cardiff in Wales, which had recently been conquered by the Normans. He enjoyed there a certain amount of liberty and hunted in the surrounding forest. One day, he leapt upon his horse and took flight. He was not well acquainted with the way. His horse sank into a bog. He was captured and taken back to prison. When the king was acquainted with this attempted escape, he ordered that the prisoner's eye should be burnt out by means of a basin of red-hot iron. The captivity of the unhappy duke became complete. But his robust constitution withstood all these misfortunes. He lived twenty-eight years in his prison, blind and alone, without news of the son whom he had left a child in Normandy 
and preserving to the last the dignified pride of his race. One day, some new clothes were brought to him from the king. Robert handled them and discovered that one of them was unripped at the seam. He was told that Henry had tried on the doublet and found it too small for him. The duke threw all the clothes to a distance, exclaiming, So then my brother, or rather my traitor, that cowardly clerk who has dismembered and deprived me of sight, holds me now in such contempt, I who was once held in such honour and renown, that he makes me arms of his old clothes as to a varlet. Robert was nearly eighty years of age when he died in 1135, some months before his brother King Henry. He had survived in his captivity and suffering almost all the chief warriors with whom he had fought before Jerusalem. Robert had, however, a son, William Cleton, or, as they soon afterwards called him, William of Normandy. But the boy was only seven years old when his uncle, finding himself in possession of the whole of Normandy, began to besiege Valais, where he was under guard. No one thought of declaring himself in favour of the little prince. He was taken and conducted to the king. The child cried and asked for mercy. He had reason to tremble, for his life was a great obstacle to the repose of his uncle. But making a violent effort to banish evil thoughts, the king desired to remove the little William from his presence and confided him to a faithful servant of his household, Heli of Saint-Saint. Some time afterwards, the king had changed his mind and desired to take back the little prince, but Heli carried him off secretly, and both took refuge at the court of the king of France, Louis the Fat. He was there growing up when King Henry was marrying his daughter Matilda, aged eight years, to Henry III, Emperor of Germany. The marriage of an eldest daughter was one of those occasions which gave the right to the feudal lord to levy taxes from their vassals, and King Henry used this right in such a way that the whole English people groaned under the burden. The splendour of the retinue, which accompanied the little princess on her departure from England, was soon forgotten. But when she returned to her native land, people still remembered the tears which her marriage had cost. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by Brattlepig